How many of you like Captain America? So most people like Captain America. There's just something endearing about the, the small little Steve Rogers guy that I can do this all day, right? There's just something about, about the underdog that we just, we love, right? And it doesn't matter if you're a sports fan. There's the, the miracle on ice from the 1980s soccer or hockey team, or maybe you're a, a history buff. There you have the 13 little colonies versus the superpower of Great Britain. Everyone seems to love cheering for the underdog, especially when they go up against the giant. And that category really comes from our story tonight, the story of David and Goliath, which is probably the most well-known, in the Old Testament at least, and by far the most inspirational story in the Old Testament. But my question for you, and the question we're going to be pondering tonight, is, is that all the story is? Is this story just intended to motivate us to go fight the odds, or is there something more happening? And so tonight we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before we really dive in, we need to bring ourselves up to speed from where we were last week. So if you were here last week, you might remember uh, that we were in the book of Judges talking about a guy named Samson. Samson was the last judge of Israel, and after he died, things got way worse. The nation spiraled out of control, a civil war broke out, and it almost resulted in one of the 12 tribes being exterminated. And the end of the book of Judges tells us that all of this happened because everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king. And so the beginning of 1 Samuel really tells the story of how Israel got a king, and his name was Saul. Saul really looked like a king, but he never led like a king. And the beginning 15 so chapters of 1 Samuel explain to us how Saul repeatedly failed to be the king he was called to be. Which gets us to our text this evening. The Israelites are still waging war with the Philistines, and so they once again line up to do battle. Israel on one side, Philistines on the other. But this time, verse 4 tells us that there was something strange and different that happened. Out of the Philistine camp, according to verse 4, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now, my guess is that all of us know the whole caricature of Goliath. He's big and tall, right? But I, 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 I need you to understand how significant these verses are in our passage. See, the Bible doesn't describe people the same way that you and I do. Like if you were to pick a a book off of the bestsellers list this year, I guarantee you that the author goes into vivid detail about their characters, explaining the size of their nose, their hair, everything you can think of to paint a, a physical picture of the individual. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is very scarce when it comes to physical details, which means anytime it tells us something about the physical makeup of a person, it's important. And so here in our text, we have not one, not two, not even three, but four verses dedicating, dedicated to describing Goliath. And just to put that in perspective, 
we know more about what Goliath looked like than we do Jesus. And so what's the writer trying to communicate here? Well, there's a couple of things. First, Goliath is very big and tall, right? The caricature is not wrong. Uh, You might remember um, from our lesson on Noah that a cubit is about 18 inches, or the span from your your middle finger to your elbow, uh, which means that Goliath was about nine feet tall. And I don't know about you, but I really don't have a frame of reference for how tall a nine-foot human being is. Like a couple years ago, I was at Target, and the retired Cavs center, Zadrudis Ilgauskas, walked by me. He's a foot taller than me, but I felt dwarfed and diminished as a human being. And I can't imagine stacking two more feet on top of him. Like that, Goliath was huge. <laughs> so but part of the point is simply Goliath was a big guy. But he wasn't just a big guy. He was incredibly strong and skilled as a warrior. That, that's why the author spends so much time talking about his armor. For example... His coat of mail would have weighed about 125 pounds. To put that in perspective, that would be like carrying around Don Garant while you're trying to do your homework or your chores or whatever. So not only is Goliath walking around with a human on him, he's waging war successfully. So here's the point. Here's the point the writer's trying to get across. Goliath is not a run-of-the-mill obstacle. Goliath is an unassailable, absolute monster. And he is a monster with a challenge. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks. He being uh, Goliath, shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The challenge is simple enough, right? Beat me and you live. But Saul's and the Israelites' response tell us what their prospects of winning were. See, this wasn't a challenge. This was a death sentence. There was no way that they were going to be able to overcome this monster. And so the question is, who's going to save them? Which is where David enters the picture. Now, if we were reading our story in context, if we had just read 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'd know and remember that David has been secretly anointed to be the next king of Israel. But for right now, he's a simple shepherd boy. He's, he's simply watching his father's sheep, or in this case, delivering food to his more impressive-looking brothers who were in Saul's army. And while he's making his delivery, he overhears Goliath's challenge, and he gets angry. After all, this Philistine is slandering the Lord and, and his army, and, and no one was doing anything about it. And so he began asking people what the reward was for killing the giant which must have been code back then for, I'll fight the guy, because he gets taken to Saul's tent to where he he presents his formal offer of giant slaying services. But Saul is unconvinced that David can do it. After all, if Saul can't, who can? And so David has to make his case. And so he starts with the practical. I'm a very resourceful fighter. I'm a scrappy dude. Uh, When I was watching my father's sheep, I took down lions and bears. Oh, my. But his real argument 
And his real confidence is shown in verse 37. David says to the king, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. See, David knew something that Saul and the others had forgotten, that God was going to fight for Israel. So he had promised as much in Deuteronomy 20, verses 3 and 4. The Lord, speaking to Israel, says, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. And so Saul acquiesces, gives David his permission, but he still wants to try to be involved, and so he makes David wear his armor, uh, which would have been about as helpful for David as me trying to help you with your math homework. And so instead, David leaves the armor behind, and he goes to a stream, and he picks up five smooth stones. Now, there's been a lot of speculation and thought put into why these five stones, why five, all this type stuff. Most of that is speculation. But here are two things that I, I feel confident in saying to you on, this, on these two things. One, the choice of stones were incredibly practical because David was trained with a slingshot. The, in the book of Judges, it records that there was a group of men who were so well-trained with a sling that they could hit a hare 50 yards away and not miss with a, with a slingshot. A, and so in the hands of the right individual, a, a smooth stone and the sling was just as deadly as anything else. And so it was practical. But the second thing was that there was a theological reason for his choice of weapon. See, if we were to read Leviticus 24.16, we would discover that the punishment for blasphemy is to be stoned to death. Guess what Goliath is guilty of? Blasphemy. Before, he had been cursing God, and whenever David shows up, he begins doing it all over again, raining down curses on God and on David, But it's David who ends up having the last word. Our story really comes to a head in verse 45 where he declares to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. (coughs) I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, (coughs) excuse me, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the rest is really history. He flings the stone, knocks the giant down, and takes Goliath's own sword, chops off his head. The end. And you can just imagine the, the, the adrenaline of the soldiers. We can do anything. And that, that's really the feeling we get when we read this story, that anything is possible if we just have a little more faith, if we're a little more like David, then we could too could face the giants in our life. But once again, the question is, is that the point? And the key to answering that question really comes in the characterization of the story. And I know this is going to sound like school. Just bear with me for 30 seconds. Anytime there is a story, each character has a a role in that story, right? So the two most common ones are protagonist and antagonist, right? The protagonist is the hero. The antagonist is the villain. 
But of course, stories are way more complex than just two characters. And so there's other people involved. And so probably what I would consider the third most important role is something called the foil. The foil is normally someone who's very much like the protagonist, but then not. He, he makes the protagonist look more heroic, more amazing and wonderful. And so we could say, right, the protagonist in our story is obviously David. The antagonist is Goliath. Who's the foil? Yeah. Yeah, it's Saul. King Saul is the foil. He's supposed to be king. He is the king, but he doesn't act like the king, right? He shows, he, he, he contrasts David and shows David to be the true king, right? The true hero of the story. Here's how this helps us. Who are we? Who are we in the story? Are we David or are we Saul? And that really depends on who Goliath is, doesn't it? Is Goliath a run-of-the-mill problem or is Goliath an absolute unassailable monster? Such as, but not limited to, death. If Goliath is a true monster, an unbeatable monster, we're Saul. We are not David. We'd like to think we're David. I'd like to think that I'm David, but uh, I'm Saul. <laughs> I'd like to think that, 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 that I have armor, my compassion, my good works, our medical advancements, that, that I can handle the giant. But when it's my turn to face him, I'll get crushed like everyone else. And so what we need then is a faithful king who will bravely fight the giant on our behalf. And that's what Christ did for us. Christ, the, the son of David, the descendant of David, the king of kings, stepped into the battle on our behalf. He defeated the seemingly unbeatable enemy. And he did so in the most shocking way possible, by dying. And yet, in so doing, the descendant of Eve crushed the serpent's head, completely destroying the giant. And so we really are like just one of the spectators that, that witnessed David defeat Goliath. We join in with the Apostle Paul when he triumphantly declares in 1 Corinthians 15, <coughs> O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, guys, the point is we are not David. We're not the hero. We can't slay the giant. But the true king already has. Mm -hmm.